This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Gavin Francis examines our collective fascination with islands in his new book, Island Dreams. In it, he blends stories of his own travels with psychology, philosophy, and literature while discussing the importance of islands in isolation in our collective consciousness. At a time when more than half of the Earth's population has been forced into isolation, Gavin examines not only the importance of community and connection, but also how valuable isolation can be for rest, recalibration, and contemplation. So now, here is Gavin Francis. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So your new book is called Island Dreams. It's slated, I believe, to be published by Canongate on October 1st. It's a tough time to publish, I think, <laughs> so I'm told. But um, you're probably not the only one thinking about or dreaming about islands and thinking about isolation and connection. So um, mm-hmm. hopefully we can drill down and talk about these uh, ideas and themes. But first and foremost, uh, your book is about islands and your experiences of them. So can you talk to us a little bit about your book? Yeah, of course. So it's called Island Dreams with a subtitle of Mapping and Obsession because it's an obsession of mine. I'm visiting various islands across the years, across 30 years of my life, and I've tried to trace the origins of that obsession. It's a, essentially an exploration through words and through maps and through literature of not just my fascination, but humanity's fascination with islands. And I try in the book to look at some of the great island stories, you know, from Robinson Crusoe to Treasure Island to Swiss Family Robinson, and also sort of broader, more culturally, how we use islands as as a culture for, for retreats, for revelations, but also we use them for obvious reasons for prisons. And there's mm-hmm. a paradox there. Um, it's, it's a very personal book. It's a personal book about journeys across 30 years of islands all over the world, Pacific to the Indian Ocean, uh, Aegean to the Arctic. And the text itself is interleaved with, with maps on every other page because I love old maps. I love the way they give an insight into the way islands I've known and loved have been imagined across the centuries, not just in my own time. And I love the fact that those old maps are full of obsolete navigational marks and old script. Mm. The, and the, the fact that the reader can look at those maps between the text gives space to explore those kind of, and imagine those kind of landscapes um, while reading about them in words. Yeah, I'd lo- love to talk about those maps in, in, a, in a bit. But I, before we get there, I want to kind of tackle a point that you just made. You said that this book was um, trying to map the origins of, of the expression, of your expression of, or your interest and fascination with islands. And also... Um, you know, the world's or humanity's fascinations with them. Um, you live on mm. an island, right? Uh, I, I suppose we all do <laughs> in some extent. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I live on the um, the island of Britain, you could say. <laughs> yeah, and, and so do I. I live in Florida. And in the book, you say that uh, a, pencil, a peninsula may stand in service of an island. So I suppose I do too. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, when I think people 
imagine islands, they think of maybe the tro- tropics or isolation or palm trees and pina coladas or, or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, what, you know, out of doing your research and your writing and your experience uh, on, on islands, um, you know, what did you come to find that islands signify uh, for you personally? And or mm-hmm. what did you find that they mean for humanity? You, you mentioned a contradiction, a paradox, perhaps. Could you talk to us about your expression of violence or your interest in them? Sure. So my own experiences, I have, of course, visited lots of those picture postcard tropical islands, you know, the kind that we see on our television screens with um, gorgeous yellow sand and palm trees and so on. Mm. Um, I was interested in a much broader perspective and the idea of islands as as retreats, you know, there's this very old historical tradition going back to the Dark Ages, past the Middle Ages, of, of islands as places monks would go and retreat to. We could, there's places, there are places too that we've used as uh, for quarantine, almost, uh, you know, leper colonies and so on, when we want to take a certain group of possibly infective human beings and, and protect ourselves from them, and which has related itself to the idea of prisons. Um, I think personally, I love the way that some of the islands I discuss in this book are or have offered me perspective on the world. They've given me the opportunity to feel part of a world emptied of, of the everyday, of, of the density of, of human connection. And obviously, most islands are, are places are home to human communities, you know, human communities for whom those islands are home. And for those, People, the experience of living there is very different. Um, mm. uh, my own experiences, I've spent a lot of time visiting islands in the North Atlantic, from the Orkney Islands up to the Faroes and Greenland. And, and those kind of places are really governed by the weather and the communities are very much governed by, by the harshness of the conditions in, in complete contra- contradistinction to the, the kind of tropical islands you mentioned at the outset. Mm-hmm. I love that if you're not a part of those communities, there's a real absence of distraction you get when you visit them. They, they, there's a closeness and the smallness about the communities that make somehow society feel more comprehensible. Um, when we live in the city, it can feel too much. You know, the, the possibility of connection, the, the potential of every encounter with so many millions of people can feel quite overwhelming. And yeah. There's another interesting paradox there in itself in that, you know, strangely enough, you might find many people feel it's easier to get lonely in the city. There's so many possibilities of connection in the city, but it's also easy there to get lonely and isolated compared to a small, tight, close-knit island community. That's a good point. Um, Yeah, you draw on the, um, in the book, you draw on the example of um, people like Darwin, who, you know, wrote his greatest work as he reflected on his isolation when he was mm-hmm. back home, surrounded by his books and family and his art, right? So mm-hmm. there is that interesting parallel there. You allude to the islands mm-hmm. and isolation as a form of therapy from too much connection. Um, mm-hmm. And that sometimes uh, that isolation is, is, is needed to recalibrate connection. And, and mm-hmm. Yet sometimes we need to kind of return back to, to the city to to reflect on those experiences. So is, is this something that you found to be true mm-hmm. in your own experience? Yeah, that's a lovely story about Darwin, you know, that he made this great round-the-world trip on the Beagle and he, he had 
experiences in the Galapagos Islands, which ultimately were to give rise to his revelations about evolution. And it was the, the isolation of the different islands in the Galapagos and the peace and absence from distraction from his other work that he had there that allowed that great revelation to happen. But he didn't manage to write it up until he was back in London or just south of London where he lived. So I think there's something in there that, that um, for some kinds of people like Darwin, um, we, we, we need the possibility and the plurality and the connections that happen in, in great intellectual centres, but also we need the option and the, the, the ability to go into places more of retreat for contemplation in order to be able to put, put our ideas together. And I think that's very much what Darwin experienced and I've certainly experienced and I'm not, I would never, ever, ever compare myself to Darwin in terms of the, the, the calibre of my thinking. But certainly I've had periods of time in my medical work um, where I feel quite busy, overwhelmed, but very, very stimulated. And it's only when I move on to a period of retreat and a bit more contemplation um, in an island that I'm able to kind of make sense of my experience and, and rebuild my, my energy and my stamina for another uh, episode of, of hard working in the city. Mm. It's this idea so that, that, yeah, there's the idea that um, kind of distraction and perhaps too much connection is the enemy of creativity and contemplation, right? Mm. Something I think we are, this is an, um, an illusion you draw on in the book with social media um, and the constant uh, competition for our attention. Um, and mm. you also draw on this phenomenon with uh, children and depression, I believe, and, you know, the psychology mm -hmm. of over-connectedness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? I mean, one is that nowadays we're also connected with smartphones. I mean, almost everyone has a smartphone. In order to get a sense of isolation, it can be enough almost just to switch off your phone. You know? And people are so accustomed to being um, ceaselessly connected that, that they start getting panic attacks when they're not. You know, if their phone's broken, they have to hand it in for a few hours to the repair store, um, that, that actually is enough to make them feel anxious. And mm -hmm. um, I think uh, what I was trying to get at when I talked about adolescence and anxiety was this, this wonderful essay by this child psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, Donald Winnicott, from way back in the 60s. Um, and he described how for good mental health, adolescents needed to have a, a measure of isolation they need to have a bit of isolation from their parents and from their therapists in order to build a strong, robust sense of themselves. Um, and he made this interesting distinction uh, between isolation, which could be good for you in doses, and insulation, which was bad. Because if, if we become too insulated, then we're not affected by the world at all. We're almost cut off from the world. Um, and it's a... I get a fascinating idea to think about that we do need a little bit of isolation in our lives and the, the psych psychiatrist, the psychoanalytical literature would um, back that up. So when you refer to insulation in an adolescent, you're perhaps referring to a, an overprotective parent, a parent that mm. shields or shelters the, the child from forging ahead and forming their own experiences and making their own connections? Yeah, partly. And I think when it was probably talking about that, but also talking about 
the pathology when a child or an adolescent uh, de- like closes themselves off mm. deliberately and then in order to protect themselves if they're in a very, very stressful home and family environment. Um, so I think it can work both ways. Um, parents can sometimes insulate their children too much and um, children sometimes can self-insulate too much. I think that's what he was getting at. And it's essentially a, a, a way of reflecting, I think, that isolation doesn't need to be all good or all bad, that it's a bit of both. And, and that it's for, for good mental health, it's enough to, to recognise when we need it and recognise when we've had enough of it. Mm. And everybody, for everybody, there'll be a different balance there. And it's a balance I've spent 30 years trying to find. Mm-hmm. And at least the last few months, obviously you wrote this book mm. uh, well before the pandemic. And so mm. um, I was just wondering, like, how, what is it like to have a book come out on the subject of isolation and connection uh, at, <laughs> at this moment, right? And how has this moment uh, kind of changed mm. the way you thought about those, those ideas? Yeah, well, I wrote I wrote the book last year, early last year, and it was originally intended to come out in May. But of course, in May, we didn't know what was happening. Everything was closed um, in the UK, where I live, and there were no bookstores open. There was no possibility of doing events. There was no possibility of even doing things like this podcast that we're getting a chance to do. And so um, the, the publication was delayed until October. I'm very glad about that. I'm able now to... to to talk about it and, and get the word out about it. Um, one thing I've really noticed in my work as a physician through this terrible, terrible period of this pandemic is how differently um, certain of my patients cope with the isolations of lockdowns that we've experienced. You know, for some people, it's been a real boon and a blessing. Some people have really loved it. People who've got secure incomes in whatever way, people who've got a garden to be able to sit in, um, some people have really reveled in the opportunity to have that kind of absence of distraction that, I've, that I'm talking about. And for other people, it's been intensely, intensely stressful, of course, really awful. People that have lost loved ones, people that are stuck at home in, in, in housing that's inadequate or too small or with too many uh, responsibilities, caring responsibilities. It's been really, really very difficult. Um, so... It's been fascinating for me as a, as a, as a doctor to, to try and guide my patients through the, the ups and downs of these, of these last few months, trying to encourage them to, to help support their mental health as best as we can in these extremely difficult circumstances. Mm. And so had you kind of been writing this book, um, if, if you were writing this book, uh, now, I mean, I mean, how would mm-hmm. how would your, I guess, ideas of it's it's impossible to say, but I'm just thinking about the, mm-hmm. the potential here and the possibility of the theme of isolation and islands and mm. you know distraction. Yeah, I don't think my I don't think my thinking would be fundamentally any different. I still think that the conclusions that I reach in the book and the kind of explorations that I go through in the book would be the same. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I. Certainly the last few months have offered me all sorts of examples of how getting the balance right in terms of, of the amount of isolation that, that is good for us is so important that too much isolation can be really damaging for people in the wrong place in the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm, I'm very conscious that, that our 
we're, we're social beings. And I've spent 20 odd years as a, as a uh, physician trying to encourage people to improve their mental health through society, through engagement with groups, through kind of communal exercise and communal opportunities. And, and here we've got a virus which is essentially spread through talking and touch. You know, it's tragic really that how much that's going to set us back um, in terms of, of the, the possibility of human connection. Because we're gonna, we've got a whole generation now of people who are now shy of, of, of getting together to talk and 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 human contact, which is going to take a long, long time to undo. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the great tragedies I see unfolding, and and a lot of the hard work of, of trying to help people think differently about their mental health has been undone by by this pandemic. Just a quick note, and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. Thank you. In your book, you, uh, in addition to having beautiful illustrations of, of maps, there are also quotes from other sources, you know, littered mm-hmm. throughout the text. And one of the quotes... Um, is from Siebald, and I, I don't have it open in front of me, but he um, the quote refers to uh, reading a book as a form of, of a voyage. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the consolations here is that people are shy and um, kind of reticent to, to have these connections and to engage with others in that more personal level, at least they can fall back on things like literature and, um, and books and uh, the beautiful maps that you have illustrated in your book as a way to explore and engage with the, the wider world. Mm. So, I, I, you know, there is that, I guess, <laughs> consolation or salvation uh, in this, uh, if we mm. can call it that. Yeah, the line, the line from Siebold is... Um uh, from Vertigo, his novel Vertigo, he says, I take refuge in prose as one might in a boat. I cross over to an island, and every time, the moment I read the first sentences, it is as if I were rowing far out on the water. And I, yeah, I love the idea that, that when we open a book, a book that we're, we're in the thrall of and that we're absorbed in, it is like almost islanding yourself. You know, you, you take yourself away from the immediate surroundings and the people that you're sitting with and and take refuge in the prose as Siebold says mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's something that that enthusiasts of good writing have always done yeah right and maps um, are also one way uh, well at least for me when I was a child uh, I used to be fascinated with with maps and I, I don't know why <laughs> when you're small you don't really know what you're looking at you're just looking at abstractions and distortions but for me I guess it was um, about you know creativity and possibility trying to imagine what was there what things were like and you know that creative exercise that's involved with that yeah I think I agree with you like when I was a little boy my my world was so circumscribed you know I could only I hardly went anywhere really and um Getting into maps, you know, whether whether your introduction was through the pages of an atlas or whether it's through um, being a Boy Scout or whatever, however you, yeah. you start to engage with maps, you, you suddenly realize that you can vicariously travel through all these other landscapes and imagine these other landscapes. It's a wonderful feeling, wonderful realization. Yeah. You say um, 
in the book that the maps give an illusion of understanding a landscape um, because of their, I guess, inherent abstraction. You know, you got to include and you know, decide if you're the cartographer, you need to decide what to include and exclude. But um, the interesting thing is that your book is beautifully illustrated with many maps, right, um, that mm-hmm. tend to make concrete the places in the world that you you write about. So um, there's this <laughs> nice tension mm-hmm. between the abstraction and the uh, and the realization of, of these places. Yeah, I mean, every map, every cartographer makes a series of very hard choices about what to leave out and what to put in, don't they? And and the older your maps get, the more stuff there is in them that's actually just made up. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that, yeah, I include a beautiful world map by Ortelius, um, Flemish cartographer, I think he was Flemish, um, which is has got an entire southern continent, which was purely imagined you know nobody knew about antarctica until um you know late 18th century they guessed at it but um certainly when ortelius was drawing maps nobody knew about antarctica and yet there's this colossal continent with all these parts of it named that he entirely invented (laughs) it's a beautiful idea and a lovely a lovely map yeah yeah, there's a, a big monster next to the <laughs> to the sea as well, which is another uh, very fascinating mm-hmm. part of these old uh, these old maps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a river of islands included down there under Tierra del Fuego, and there's a sort of uh, tiny little uh, legend that, that describes a river of islands. So I think maybe he had a fascination with islands himself, mm. that cartographer. So I think when when um, readers pick up this book, I think one of the things that they'll find is that, as you described earlier, that this book is kind of about a fascination. It's about an idea. And one of the things that you won't necessarily find is like this strict chronological narrative, mm-hmm. right? It's it's very kind of ideas-based and it's fragmentary. It hops around, island hops, mm-hmm. <laughs> if we can use that yeah. metaphor. So how? just curious, like how did you approach, you know, the the writing of this book and and the the idea of this book? Um, well, it's very different from my other books. It's my fifth book, um, and I've written two books which are very much travel narratives. So I wrote a book about the Arctic um, in 2008 called True North, and it's about the European Arctic. And then I wrote a book about Antarctica, about being a doctor at a research station in Antarctica, um, in 2012, it was called Empire Antarctica. And they were very much travel books, those two. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of long narratives uh, about the experience of going through a landscape and, and what that evokes in me as a traveller and um, as a reader. And then I wrote two books which are very much about medicine. There's one called um, Adventures in Human Being and one called Shapeshifters. So the first one was about imagining the body as a kind of landscape and how I've traveled through it in my medical career. And the second one was very much about, um, which is shapeshifters, was about how the body is ceaselessly dynamic. You know, it's always in transformation moment to moment and how in medicine we use that kind of dynamism for good and try and um, encounter the, the changes that are for the worst. And when I came to write this book, I just want, I knew I wanted to do something completely, completely different. I wanted the, the prose in it to be completely distilled down to the essentials. And because I was compressing 30 years of journeys, I knew that it would have to be in short, almost island-like paragraphs. Mm. 
taking the essence of each kind of reflection or revelation or description from each different island that I was discussing and setting it with others that were, were similar in theme, even if they weren't anywhere near, uh, near one another in the time that I visited them. So they, they move through, the, the, there's themes that are, for example, about, about books, like islands that are well known through books. There's islands that are, um, have been used as prisons. There's islands that have been used as retreats um, for, for monks or religious people. Um, I wrote one about a whole chapter about an island where I lived once as a, uh, a warden on a bird reserve in Scotland. Uh, I wrote one, another chapter about the islands in Lake Titicaca in Peru, Bolivia, because they were thematically so different, those kind of islands that are 4,000 metres up in the sky. And so each different chapter brings in themes rather than, than, than a single place topographically. And it just seemed to to roll out that way. I mean, this book almost wrote itself, really. Um, it was kind of in places I felt as I was writing it, it was a little bit like taking dictation, and and it and it moves through these different places thematically, working up to 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 the last few years when I've attempted to seek some kind of resolution between this tension of island and city that that has so animated all my journeys and my choices over the last uh, few decades. Mm -hmm. And I think in those later chapters, we, we start to read a little bit more into, you know, your personal life. You you bring Mm -hmm. up your relationships and your families and, you know, the tensions inherent, not within the family unit, but with, you know, satisfying the needs of a partner and moving from Mm -hmm. an island to, um, you know, more populated uh, area. So, mm-hmm. you know, the meat, for lack of a better metaphor, right, the meat on the bones in terms of like seeing you mm-hmm. as a character, you know, builds and builds in, until until the end, as you, as you mentioned. And mm-hmm. speaking of which, um, you know, you are, as you mentioned, a practicing doctor mm-hmm. and you've written travel books in the past and we hope that you'll continue to write them in the future. So how do you, how do you balance the time uh, to, to travel and write and treat the ill and not neglect your family? Like, how do you, how do you make that work? Yeah, it's very difficult um, at the moment because I've got young kids and, um, and I need to be around at home for a lot of time at the moment. But I did a lot of travel in the 10 years after qualifying as a doctor. So, you know, I qualified 20 years ago. And I did a lot, a lot of traveling and I worked all over the world and I um, had been an expedition doctor and a doctor in, in places in Africa and in India. And it's only with having kids of my own and um, coordinating my, my travels with my wife's responsibilities to her own work that I've really had to slow down. And my, my journeys now are much more, much shorter, much more circumscribed. I mean, Obviously, with the pandemic, nobody's traveling anywhere. The last mm-hmm. time I traveled was in February. I was in New York just for a week to do a, a panel at the New York Academy of Sciences and um, uh, meet some people in publishing. And that's the last time I did any kind of journeying. And I have no idea when I'm going to be able to do traveling again. But the last few years, it's been very much like that, short, short trips for a week or so. Um, but, you know, the kids are getting older. My uh, horizons are widening again slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Uh, there's um, 
I guess there's a there's a fine line between like a, a memoir and a travel book, and um, mm. one is an element of the other. I, I don't know which one came first, but for you, since you've mentioned you know your earlier uh, travel books, um, mm. what what in your opinion makes a, a good travel book? Oh, I think um, for every reader, there's going to be a slightly different answer for this, isn't there? But for me, mm-hmm. uh, I want it to have an exciting, interesting storyline. I want it to transport me somewhere else, maybe even somewhere I've never been. I want it to, even if it's taking me somewhere I've been, I want it to show me something that I wouldn't ordinarily see and give me the the perspective for the few hours it takes me, the few hours I'm in the company of that book. I want it to give me the perspective of another person, of the author. And, you know, and I love beautiful prose, well-written uh, prose. So I would want the book to be um, satisfying, you know, the, 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 the craft of the writing, I would want it to be well put together too. Um, and there's, yeah, I still, I love, I love good travel writing and I still read widely in that. And I want, um, I want to go on writing travel books into the future. Who knows what the post pandemic travel world is going to look like, but um, I want to keep, offering readers the chance to, to explore other places they wouldn't ordinarily see. Um, Thoreau had a great line, didn't he, about um, uh, not being interested in travel. He said that, that he wasn't interested in hearing about the Sandwich, South Sandwich Islands or, or about Hawaii. He wasn't interested in hearing about California. He was far more interested in hearing about New England. Um, but then he said a fascinating thing, didn't he? He said, he said that, any book written honestly is like hearing from a distant land. And I think that's true. You know, I live in Edinburgh and Scotland and, and I could read a travel book about Edinburgh and learn all sorts of things and really enjoy it because I'd be seeing the city that I've known for so long through different eyes. And the best literature, the best books, that's what they managed to do. We're running short of time here and just curious if you could uh, close us out by reading a passage from the book. Sure. Have you got any preference after having spent time with the book yourself? What would you like me to read from or do you not mind? Uh, I didn't have anything in mind. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me look at the table. That's all right. I could read something just from the introduction, if you like. Sure. Or sure. I could read a description. Let me read a description of visiting um, the Lofoten Islands after being in, in Africa. So I was in Kenya working in a... Um, a hospital type setting, and then I went to the Arctic Norway. In writing these observations on islands, I'm aware of casting my mind back across 30 years of journeys, the islands serving as stepping stones into memory, each one illustrative of a turn taken in life, a phase of reflection or change. In Kenya, I'd often been the palest and hottest person on any given street, and I began to yearn for a place I'd be inconspicuous and cool. After just a few days home in Edinburgh, I caught a boat to Bergen in Norway. From Bergen, I went by train to Bode, then took a ferry into the Arctic archipelago of Lofoten. There I fell in with a French couple of islophiles, Claire and Jean-Baptiste. My French was poor, as it still is, so their company came with a measure of welcome isolation. The slopes of the Lofoten Mountains were carpeted in a thick moss, 
that molded itself around my body as I slept. The tensions of those African journeys dissolved. We climbed a mountain overlooking the original Milestrom, a tidal whirlpool between two of the islands. My sleep was interrupted by the croaking of ravens. About midnight one night, I was woken by Claire to see an aurora borealis. The lights were just beginning, a small flame of grey haze against the night. From the clifftop, we watched them multiply, columns of green conjured from nothing only to flourish and then evanesce. A wash of swirling luminescence rose and fell like marbled end papers spread over the book of the sea. Meteorites flashed through the ionosphere, and at one moment, standing high on the island ridge, I was surrounded on all sides by vertical pillars of grey-green light stretching up to infinity. Sometimes the flames came quickly, but more often they moved imperceptibly, so that as I turned my attention away from one part of the horizon and back, I hadn't noticed any movement, but the scene had changed. I sat up watching the lights until the filament of crimson along the northern horizon fattened to a dull dawn and more light rose from the horizon in chromatography columns, dissolving the aurora into the gathering day. So the, the Lofoten Islands is just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience for me, a really extraordinary place. And yeah, the chapter then goes on to consider how the isolation there was therapeutic, even beneficial in my life mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's in um for the listeners that's in the chapter that deals with uh transformation somewhere near yeah. the beginning of the of the book and mm. of course there's beautiful as we mentioned beautiful maps and images in the book and if you want to catch a glimpse of them gavin has been tweeting some images from the book <laughs> so you could uh, uh -huh. go check them out on his uh twitter account what is uh can you remind us what your profile is yeah the twitter account is just uh, gavin frank so gavin francis without the is and then they're also up on instagram under island mapper very good We'll put those uh, links in the show notes. And uh, well, we wish you success with this book. I know it's a, a tough time, but it's perhaps the uh, the best time for a book like this to come out, given given the connections and, and the themes therein. So thank you again for coming to, to talk with me. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.